Informed Dissent, the intersection of healthcare and politics, with Dr. Jeff Barkey, board-certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald, board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Mark, great to be with you again on informeddissentmedia.com. So much to talk about, so little time. We've got a phenomenal guest uh, with us tonight, Dr. Peter McCullough, who arguably may be one of the most knowledgeable uh, COVID-19 physicians in the country and a, an incredible spokesperson for what's going on in the, in the medical tyranny that we're all fighting. So, uh, Dr. McCullough, welcome. So glad to have you on tonight. Well, thanks for having me on the show. Now, I know that uh, you've been introduced in a whole variety of ways. So rather than botch it, I thought we'd let you introduce yourself and, and uh, tell our audience about who you are. Well, we're 18 months into the pandemic. I feel like I've completed a fellowship in SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, uh, the pandemic. But I'm an academic internist and cardiologist. I maintain my board certifications in both, uh, as well as a trained epidemiologist. And I, uh, at the start of the pandemic, put my research and my academic focus, which had previously been on heart and kidney disease and all the complicated interrelationships between those two organs, and I have put all my efforts on COVID-19 uh, from its epidemiology, its pathophysiology, what we've learned about the virus, very importantly, how to treat it early to prevent hospitalization and death, and then most recently, the clinical outcomes on efficacy and safety with the vaccines. Wonderful. You know, um, you don't know this, and I'm not sure our audience does, but I uh, recently uh, had COVID myself, and our colleague, Dr. Brian Tyson, was instrumental in helping me through that and uh, advising me on various medications and so forth. And uh, I received Regeneron and uh, also used uh, Ivermectin uh, along with some Budesonide and so forth. And about a week went by and I recovered and back to back to 100% and feeling great. There's a lot of discussion now, especially there's studies ongoing and that have been released on the effects of natural immunity versus vaccine immunity. So now I'm recovered, I've got immunity uh, just like other viruses that we recover from, no one would ever suggest at this point that I should go out and get a vaccine against a virus that I just recovered from. Can you talk to talk a little bit about natural immunity and how effective it is? Well, I thought I'm glad you brought it up because it is the topic of the day. We know that SARS-CoV-2, the present virus, is 90 percent similar to SARS-CoV-1, the original SARS virus, which had robust, complete, and durable immunity now for 17 years. So biologically, we fully expected that our complete uh, T cell, B cell, natural killer cell, the full, the full immune response was going to hold up against SARS-CoV-2 and the variants. And we've learned, in fact, that's the case. So the, the listeners can uh, uh, be directed to a wonderful report by Jennifer Block in the British Medical Journal in September 17th issue that highlighted uh, the data from the U.S. Uh, census and from the CDC estimating that fully 120 million people like you now and like me have had COVID-19, we've recovered, and that uh, of ages 18 to 49, 44% of that group 
has already had COVID-19. Fortunately, we are seeing no failures of vaccine immunity. In fact, the CDC hasn't recorded a single case of vaccine uh, of uh, natural immunity failures, but we've seen uh, tens of thousands of vaccine failures. So the natural immunity far better than the vaccine immunity. And now uh, in today's issue of the Brownstone Institute report online, one of the better summaries I've seen, there are now 29 supportive papers showing that natural immunity after COVID-19 is robust, complete, and durable. The only thing that confuses the literature is an occasional downstream false positive test. Once somebody's had COVID-19, by the way, for you, I'd encourage that you never get another test. In fact, the CDC agrees. Don't get any more tests because all you're going to do is get a false positive test and be confused. You can't get COVID-19 twice, by and large. Is there any risk to somebody that is uh, recovered or recently recovered from getting the vaccine? I've read some reports that there may actually be increased risk, increased side effects and potential harm from the vaccine in people that have recovered recently from COVID. Indeed, there are. And I've summarized three of them on America Out Loud uh, Talk Radio, the McCullough Report. It was by Raw, uh, Kramer and Methudius. And now another three have weighed in. And all of the studies agree. Once somebody has had the respiratory illness, that the vaccine, which can offer no benefit, only causes harm with more safety events, including serious ones that wind people up in the hospital. And you know, the FDA, uh, Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J, they knew this. They excluded COVID recovered from the clinical trials. And when we exclude COVID recovered from clinical trials, we never use that medicine or vaccine in practice. So I've, I've been on national TV. I'm a frequent contributor to Fox News, the Ingram Angle. I've told America now for months that COVID recovered patients are absolutely contraindicated from receiving the vaccine. What you've just said, Peter, is I, I want to really focus on this because it, it may just sort of blow over everyone's heads and they're really important points two points the first is if you have acquired immunity you cannot benefit from getting a shot you cannot it's not possible and i, I think that this is such an important aspect of healthcare policy right now that's being overlooked by most people that I, I want to make sure that everyone actually hears you out. Let me yeah, just follow ahead. up on that. There, there's one paper out there by the CDC. It was published in the MMWR, and it's been the one paper that um, individuals have held up uh, regarding vaccinated the COVID recovered. And in this paper, uh, in the state of Kentucky, they had 500,000 cases of COVID-19, and they were able to find a couple hundred patients uh, in, in two groups. One group was that they were COVID recovered and they took the vaccine. And the other group is they were COVID recovered and they didn't take the vaccine. And then they looked later on in time in who had a positive test. And it turned out that those uh, who were COVID recovered, who took the vaccine had fewer positive tests. And uh, there was no clinical illness reported in the paper. So, it's, so we can't know if it actually was, you know, real COVID-19 or false positive tests. And I analyzed that paper carefully. You know what I realized? That the CDC tells people once they take the vaccine to actually not get any more tests. So even if you came in for a gallbladder surgery or heart catheterization, you wouldn't have gotten a COVID-19 test 
However, if you're unvaccinated, even if you're COVID recovered, you're still subjected to all this unnecessary testing. So I think the Kentucky paper is simply a manifestation of testing bias because there was no real illness reported. So as we sit here today, there's not a single study and certainly no randomized trials that show any benefit whatsoever to a COVID recovered patient taking a vaccine. So this is where healthcare and politics really become enmeshed because what you just described is a setup to support a policy that does not make actually any medical sense, which is if you are already naturally acquired immune, not from a vaccine, but you already got an infection, you recovered, and you keep getting tests, the only thing that can happen is that eventually you're going to get a false positive and you're going to be thrown into the bucket of the uh, breakthrough infection category, which does not actually exist. And on the other hand, if you get the vaccine, you truly can get breakthrough infections because the vaccine doesn't actually provide immunity, uh, unlike a real vaccine, a traditional vaccine. And yet you're not being tested so that you wind up with basically a pool of people who already got vaccinated, who now lead us to believe that you're protected from future infection. So the, the whole thing is um, is nonsensical, and it's it's actually designed to lead people to ignore natural immunity, which is 100% protective, and to focus on receiving a vaccination, which doesn't actually provide immunity from the infection. But it was by design, uh, Mark, the, from the very beginning in December, the um, vaccine program offered and then gently encouraged COVID recovered people to, to get the vaccine. I remember that in December when it got rolled out to the hospitals, there's all kinds of messages. And this is interesting in December of last year where it said, listen, are you gonna take the vaccine? I said, well, no, I've already had the infection. They said, well, you should take it anyway. It was kind of, you know, kind of being prompted back in December. And, and since that time, uh, you know, people who are supporting the vaccine have tried to find some rationale of vaccinating this large block of people who don't need the vaccine and the data keep pouring in uh, that there's nothing to support benefit and there's uh, a lot of data to support harm. You know, recent update, Bruce Patterson at the Rome Summit presented a paper which I thought was uh, really remarkable. In COVID-19, the respiratory infection, he was able to identify the S1 segment of the spike protein in human monocytes 15 months after the respiratory infection. And his explanation is no wonder people have long COVID syndrome. No, no wonder they have psychiatric, neurocognitive, uh, peripheral nervous manifestations. Um, and no wonder if the body spends 15 months trying to scavenge the spike protein out of the body, no wonder they do poorly with another spray of spike protein mm -hmm. from a COVID-19 vaccine. Peter, there's another group of uh, people that are uh, unvaccinated that they're coming after, and that's our children. Uh, is there any possible reason why a parent should allow their child to get vaccinated with this messenger RNA technology? I can't find uh, the risk-benefit analysis, even for a single child, that'd be beneficial. And I'll point the listeners to two important papers that were presented to the FDA at the September 17th meeting on boosters. Now, that meeting was historic because the advisory panel strongly voted against boosters because of the external presenters' presentations. So one analysis... Uh, is across age groups, as published by Ron Kostoff in Toxicology Reports, showed 
that one is more likely to die after the vaccine than taking your chances of getting COVID-19 and then subsequently dying of the infection. The risk is really unfavorable in children and it starts to level out in the older age groups, but at no age group was it more favorable to take the vaccine. The second analysis, uh, the original papers published by Tracy Hogan colleagues from University of California Davis showing that a younger individual is more likely to be hospitalized with myocarditis of which, by the way, when they do develop myocarditis, the fully 8,000 people who've gotten it so far, 86% are hospitalized. This my vaccine myocarditis is no joke. They're more likely to be uh, hospitalized with vaccine myocarditis than be hospitalized with COVID-19. So these two papers, uh, and the FDA didn't disagree with this, these two papers basically present an overwhelmingly unfavorable um, risk-to-benefit relationship for vaccination. And under no circumstances, again, I've been on national TV. I have been unafraid to make this call. No individual under age 30 should be considered for COVID-19 vaccines. And now we're hearing a wave of pauses and moratoriums across Scandinavia in that age group. Do you think, there, do you think it's just financial incentive, the push to vaccinate the children then? I think it's driven out of fear. And uh, personally, I think the mass psychology of this is very important. People have been uh, absolutely frozen in fear for 18 months. Do you know there's parents and grandparents that are afraid of their children? They think their children are going to bring COVID-19 into the household. Uh, they're fearful because they know the vaccines are failing. And very importantly, uh, you know, the two papers through June, one by Havers from the COVID, COVID Net Network, uh, and then one by uh, fin uh, Finley from the VA, both show through the month of June, 23% of Americans in the hospital are vaccinated. Now we fast forward, we have CMS data through the first week in August, 60% of seniors over age 65 in a hospital are vaccinated. So Americans are talking to one another. They know the vaccines are failing. And so this is out of fear. And one of the little um, memes that I see going on, on the internet, it says, my vaccine doesn't work unless you take yours. And I think that actually is a true fear-driven um, moniker that's out there that, that we're not all protected unless we get vaccinated. And unfortunately, this is all being levered at the children as the vaccines fail in seniors. And now children are gonna bear the brunt of risk in this indiscriminate vaccination. So we're told though that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated and it's the unvaccinated that is stimulating these new variants uh, to emerge like the Delta variant. It, it seems to me that the evidence is, is quite opposite to that. Can you, can you speak to that? Well, if you, if you look on this uh, group right here, we're all, uh, we, we look different, right? Uh, some of us have hair, some of us don't. Um, you know, we're all, gen we're all different. Variation is normal in species and in populations. And indeed, the virus has always had variants. There's been multiple different variants, a half a dozen or more variants, and they all lived at different proportions over time. What had happened is once we got to more than 25% vaccinated, a paper by Neeson, another one by Arcevito, another one by Venkata Krishna, and I don't know the authors by heart, and I can tell you the science is very good. When you get to more than 25% vaccinated, that's a non-lethal evolutionary pressure that, that basically forces a dominant variant to emerge, and the dominant variant that emerged was the Delta variant because the Delta can thrive in the nose and mouth of the vaccinated. And so that's what happened. Mashtara, India, another state where they got to more than 25% vaccinated. Delta sprang up. Delta was springing up elsewhere in the UK. 
And now in the United States, for the first time, we have 99% Delta. We've never had a single dominant variant because so many people have taken the vaccine. We have 60% of Americans have taken the vaccine, 80% of seniors, and the Delta is thriving among the vaccinated. I want to ask you a question about early treatment. Given that the vaccines are obviously not our way out because they are failing, as you say, and you have been an advocate, an advocate and a, a strong proponent of early treatment uh, from day one uh, because it's rational and it's effective and it's safe and it's cheap and all the good stuff. What do you make of the, what I see is this amazingly just out of the blue reversal of the formal public health care policy against early treatment towards this this loving embrace of the new Merck and Pfizer oral pill treatments that are coming onto the market, as if we've been waiting for this for 18 months, we've been in the desert searching for something that we could possibly take that would save our lives because nothing has been available, despite, as I said, you, you've been mentioning and, and speaking about early treatment from the beginning. And now we have these two pills that are that are showing up uh, to market soon, and uh, suddenly they're our savior, and and we're going to cross the finish line with these new branded uh, daily treatments. You know, we've had situations like this in cardiology where we had broad embrace of uh, generic products, and those generic products were basically trounced in order to have a new branded product came in. It came in with uh, ticlopidine or ticlid for antiplatelets. I remember this with Mavicor. Uh, good old Lovastatin uh, when we had uh, Lipitor uh, hit the market. So we've seen this before. Um, my points are that our early treatment uh, is clear. You know, Americans, uh, the, the message has gotten out. The historic Senate hearings chaired by Ron Johnson really did work. The message got to Americans. Uh, we now use monoclonal antibodies first line. Uh, we, we have great data with the nutraceuticals. Um, we actually have great data now with oral nasal hygiene using dilute povidone iodine or betadine. It really works twice a day, nose and mouth, uh, good washes, followed by Listerine or scope uh, is preventive. Post-exposure, we boost it to four times a day. And during active treatment, we do it every four hours. And a randomized trial by Chowdhury and colleagues show a 75% reduction in incipient COVID-19. We can actually abort the infection with high-quality nasal and oral anti-infective treatment. I had COVID-19 myself this fall and I really kicked myself for not knowing about this because I could have done so much to reduce my viral load. And I, I think I probably could have uh, avoided pulmonary involvement if I would have been much better. I didn't do anything for the nose and mouth. I just started taking the pills and I should have used that, that viral therapy in the nose and mouth. And but I bet it doesn't use, cost $700 for a course of treatment either. No, it, it's about, yeah, it's about $5 a bottle. Which is so the current cost the, of the new the, treatment. The, the virucidal therapy, the nutraceuticals, monoclonal antibodies. If we use monoclonal antibodies, age over 65 for sure, and then over age over 50, medical problems, we can actually skip hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. And then we can just move into uh, probably some antibiotics, doxycycline, inhaled budesonide, oral prednisone, oral colchicine, full-dose oral aspirin, and then anticoagulants if we need them. We can actually skip that step. The new Merck and Pfizer drugs, we're going to come into the oral antiviral category of which we already have hydroxy and ivermectin. We already have favipiravir for our um, ex-US colleagues in Russia and in Japan and in India and elsewhere. 
Mopinavir, which is the Merck drug, is very similar to favipiravir. It's an oral polymerase inhibitor. Favipiravir is not that great of a drug. The, 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 um, the single target polymerase inhibitors are very slow to work and they're not that effective. And that's the reason why favipiravir is not taking the world by storm. I think mopinavir and the new Pfizer drug, they're going to be similar because they only have one mechanism of action. Remember hydroxychloroquine and, and ivermectin have three different mechanisms of action. The new drugs are not going to be able to match the old ones um, on the ability to reduce viral replication. But in total, what I've described, sequence multidrug therapy, you know, famous recipients are former President Trump. He got that. Governor Abbott, a vaccine failure case. He got it. Podcaster Joe Rogan got it. When Joe Rogan uh, got it, um, I, I think it was Dan Ball that had me on TV. I said, Dan, Joe Rogan just had what we drew up for them. Uh, Mark McDonald, all the other heroes. This is what we've been doing all year long. And it was great to see wonderful examples of people getting therapy. And uh, the, the disappointing things we saw our director of the National Allergy and Immunology Institute and then CNN and MSNBC commentaries saying that ivermectin, they tried to knock down Joe Rogan because he got monoclonal antibodies and he got ivermectin in the drugs as he should. They tried to pick on ivermectin, so pick on one drug, right? And they said it was horse paste and they said there was no evidence for its use. Ivermectin has over 60 supportive studies, over 30 randomized trials, and it's first line use in Japan, Mexico, South America, so as, as, as they're stating no evidence, um, you know, our Japanese Americans talking to their relatives would be scratching their heads. Then why is it used first line in Japan, a very sophisticated country that very carefully reviews it? You know, the Japanese regulatory agency is a higher bar than the FDA. And so I think it speaks volumes to the fact that ivermectin is very uh, well supported, very versatile. And, and all we've seen is uh, a wave of negative statements last year against hydroxychloroquine, this year against ivermectin, almost as if they're trying to kill the totality of early treatment and all the advances that we've made. Wow. Peter, can we, can we still trust the FDA and the CDC? At this point in time, uh, you, you know, what we've had is we've had our agencies trying to do something that's beyond their scope of action. Now, the FDA is a regulatory body that largely just deals with advertising labels on drugs and drug safety. The FDA has actually never orchestrated a major public health program, and yet the FDA is the co-sponsor of the vaccine program with the CDC. Now, the CDC is an outbreak analysis organization. They have never been the sponsor of a major public health program. And interestingly, the person who has the most authority, it appears, is not an FDA official and not an NIH official. It's a division head at the National Institutes of Health, of which the overall director has just resigned. So I have to tell you, we have, I think, organizational um, uh, dysfunction, mismatch for what the program should be. I think immediately we should have uh, expert uh, oversight uh, authoritative panels in installed. A paper by Bruno and colleagues called for this back in May, said, listen, if you can't get oversight in here, uh, we cannot have these agencies working far beyond their competencies trying to administer a public program. We don't have any day safety monitor board. We've had no clinical review. America's had no report card on how the vaccines are doing. We were supposed to have monthly report cards that actually gave us differential safety and efficacy and risk mitigation. You know, right now, I mean, when people say they're being forced to take a vaccine, my patients say, which one's the best? I said, I can't tell you. Which one's the safest? I said, I don't even know how to 
administer one safely because our agencies are holding all the data and they've still yet to give us a report. So the FDA recently, not recently, about a month now, approved one of the versions of the Pfizer vaccine. Can you talk a little bit about that? Is that vaccine actually available or has this been a bait and switch uh, event? It's been a bait and switch event. It was August 23rd. It was a closed meeting, no expert advisory panel, no external presenters like in September 17th. What happened was the FDA was presented data by Pfizer on just antibody data, antibody data um, uh, uh, regarding, um, and then the extension, the six month extension data from the randomized trials that basically showed that Pfizer with the legacy variants the registry had some vaccine efficacy against non-serious outcomes, but there was no differential in hospitalization and death, none. In fact, there were a few more deaths with Pfizer than with placebo. That was the data they operated on. And through that, the judgment was by the FDA, no approval for Pfizer, none. It was a continuation of the EUA. And then there was a transference and what's called a biologic licensing agreement, a BLA, that was granted to uh, BioNTech, the German company with Carmenati, and the paperwork says that they're legally distinct entities. They're, they're, they're essentially the same, but they're legally distinct. So Comirnaty um, and, and, and BioNTech picked up the biologic license agreement, which was onerous because that agreement now says that they have to carry forward with the product if they choose to commercialize it, but they have to do a large number of post-marketing studies on myocarditis, and they have a lot of cautionary warnings about uh, pregnancy and receiving the vaccine. So that BLA and conditional um, package insert for BioNTech is just sitting there. Uh, right now, there's no Comirnaty in the United States. Uh, there's been no change in the consent form. And you know, the consent form across the United States either uses the word investigational or research, to my knowledge, in every one of them. I was in court last week in Maine, and I mentioned the word investigational. And the attorney, the opposing attorney said, aha, Dr. McCullough, it's not investigational in Maine. Have you seen the uh, consent form in Maine? And I said, well, I'm looking at the one from Texas. Let me look at the one from Maine. I looked at the one in Maine. I said, no, uh, counsel, it doesn't say investigational. It just says flat out research. It says that, that <laughs> it is research in the state of Maine. And it's true. So the point is, none of the vaccines are fully FDA approved. They're all research. And, and in terms of research, every single consent form says it's completely elective. Our Office of Human Research Protections in the United States has six cornerstones of research ethics. The first two are the Nuremberg Code and the Declaration of Helsinki. The Nuremberg Code says under no circumstances can anybody receive any pressure, coercion, or threat of reprisal for participating in research. And the Declaration of Helsinki says there must be full informed consent. And right now, our agencies are not fully giving the safety data from the post-release uh, VAERS program. And so I can't imagine how anybody could take a vaccine and, and, and interpret the data. We've had over 15,000 people die after the vaccine, over 200,000 be hospitalized, have urgent care visits or office visits. We have 20,000 people who are permanently disabled after the vaccine that the CDC is telling us about, over 8,000 cases of myocarditis. And, and I can tell you, it's an unqualified disaster. That, that information has to be fairly presented to the next person who takes the vaccine. It's not doing so. So we're violating the Nuremberg Code and we're violating the Declaration of Helsinki. That's part of this this ethics package that our Office of Human Research Protections is supposed to be protecting America from. So when Dr. McCullough is not eating, breathing, and dreaming COVID-19, what, what do you do for fun? 
you know, I need to enjoy this good weather in Texas and get out and uh, go for a good run. But I had a good time a few weeks ago. I went to the Dixie Center in Fort Worth and watched the comeback concert for Eric Clapton. Ah. And I tell you, it was a great experience uh, that week. Uh, Eric had reached out to me and my wife. We went and met him, spent some time with him. He wanted to tell me about his vaccine injury. He freely took the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. He did have a worsening of a peripheral neuropathy, could not play a guitar uh, for some time, which was alarming. And uh, he's using all kinds of treatments to try to keep his neuropathy under control. But we had a great time. In fact, my wife was a terrific cook. Uh, um, she ended up uh, hitting it off with Eric and his, his team, and they came over to my house for dinner in Dallas, and we had a great time. I wanted to just ask you two quick questions. My wife and I flew recently southwest, of all things. Interesting how... Uh, those protests are going with the airlines, which is fantastic. But I noticed that the uh, that the pilots up on the flight deck do not wear masks, but the rest of us in the back back of the plane are masked up in the whole theater of COVID. Yet there's recirculated air throughout the plane, and I'm sure the COVID virus are smart enough that they can go up front as well as the back of the plane. Could mm -hmm. you just comment briefly, what is the state of the art currently with the idea of whether or not masks can actually prevent the spread of a respiratory virus like COVID-19? Mm -hmm. Well, a couple of important points that um, presumably the um, the pilots are vaccinated. Let's just say they're vaccinated. Two, uh, two important papers, one by uh, Reimer Isma from the University of Wisconsin Department of Public Health, and then one from Acharyan, again from UC Davis, has shown the vaccinated and unvaccinated have equal viral loads but very high viral loads of delta okay so and they're equally as infectious so in the wisconsin paper they actually took isolates from the vaccinated unvaccinated and they actually tested in vitro about how infectious they were with standard uh, assays and they're equally as infectious so those two pilots who are sitting together unmasks they're basically can they can spread COVID to one another and there was a paper from Chow in Ho Chi Minh City where they had they had isolated healthcare workers that were locked down in dormitories on a healthcare campus. They were fully vaccinated. They couldn't talk or see anybody. And then they started passing it to each other, one another. So the the pilots, um, uh, in a sense, masked or unmasked, are an equal threat to one another, whether they've taken the vaccine or not. The vaccine is irrelevant. Now the masks themselves. There's been 12 randomized trials of general masking. The most recent one, Dan Mask, shows no impact on masking. The only thing I would say is that masks haven't been my signature issue. I came from the hospital today. I wore a mask all day. I do wear it out of courtesy, and I ask patients if they're comfortable. I explain to them that I've had COVID-19. In fact, I wear a little bracelet that says naturally immunized on my bracelet um, to, I got that from Senator Majority Leader Mike uh, Sharkey from um, Michigan, who successfully led a naturally immunized awareness campaign. And I let them know, listen, I, I can't give the receive, can't give or receive the virus. Do you mind if I let down my mask? And 90% of the time the patients take off their masks uh, as well. So they don't want to wear them. But general masking is not effective. What I think we should have from a public health perspective is we should have intelligent work school policies. If a sick child is sick, they should stay at home and then they should never go to work and the parents should have accommodations to keep the kids at home. If a child becomes sick at school, they should be removed away from the kids, put a mask on 
and then go home. That's really the only use of a mask. If a patient has COVID-19 and they're sick, they should put on a mask when they go out to the infusion center for the monoclonal antibodies and go home, or put on a mask if they have to go out for laboratories or a chest X-ray or CT. So I think masking should be very strategic for acutely sick people as a reasonable best effort. It's not perfect. Maybe it could block a big sneeze or something like that. Um, but we've had far too much emphasis on masks. Uh, you know, I'm a frequent contributor to Fox News. Every time I go on Fox, they always want to load up the next question about masks. And I've told Laura Ingram over and over again, focusing on masks is taking away our attention of the, the issue at hand. The issue at hand are people are sick and they need early treatment. Finally, what about remdesivir? Does it work? Uh, should patients be refusing it when they're admitted to the hospital? What role does it have in overall treatment? I'm not an expert on remdesivir. I can just tell you it's a single uh, target a polymerase inhibitor. Uh, most of the time, it's probably given far too late for it to have any effect. The virus, the average person getting hospitalized is two to four weeks into the illness. The viral replication phase is over with. So to give a polymerase inhibitor that late in the illness uh, is, uh, is going to be unlikely to have uh, an impact. And on top of that, we've learned about serious toxicities, liver toxicity, as well as renal toxicity. And the liver toxicity, because it's cumulative and we have to give five days, um, I've rarely had a patient get through five days of therapy because the AST and ALT, they raise above a level that's just that, that's above um, uh, inducibility of the, these detoxification enzymes. They're actually at a level of toxicity to the liver. So um, I think uh, the most important drugs in the hospital, as opposed to remdesivir, are full-dose aspirin and full-dose anticoagulation. They should get full-dose intravenous uh, corticosteroids, not oral uh, dexamethasone. And then we have some additional op uh, options. We have tozolizumab, uh, barcetinimab. Um, and, and importantly, last patient I had in the hospital, you know what I pushed for? Uh, it be entered in a randomized trial of a monoclonal antibody. And I think just like we use monoclonal antibodies, uh, in the outpatient phase, just when they get on the other side of the admission, they should be offered monoclonal antibodies during the inpatient stay. Sadly, I did have, lose a patient recently. I sent him to the emergency room for a monoclonal antibody, uh, and instead of getting a monoclonal antibody, they promptly admitted him. They told him he's no longer eligible for it, and then he was going to be teed up for remdesivir or other therapies, and he passed away. And I think it's heartbreaking. We need to go with our drugs at work. Monoclonal antibodies work. The data on remdesivir is mixed, and the toxicity is real. Where can our listeners find out more about you if they want to follow you and, uh, and understand more about what you're doing? They can follow me on America Out Loud Talk Radio, The McCullough Report, and can also uh, uh, check out Truth For Health Foundation and go to truthforhealth.org. It's a blue screen. I'm the chief medical advisor for that organization. They have uh, the early treatment protocols, a lot of information on vaccine safety and efficacy, and a lot of opportunity to get involved. So many people at this point in time are so frustrated with pandemic response, they actually want to do something constructive. And Truth for Health is a great place to go. Dr. McCullough, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it. I know your time is valuable. Keep up the great work. You're an inspiration to all of us. Okay, thanks for having me. Thank, thank you. you. You've been listening to Informed Dissent with Dr. Jeff Barkey, board-certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald, board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Informed Dissent, the intersection of healthcare and politics.